I'm Andrew Schenkel, and this is the Tree Podcast, conversations about communicating climate action. Even before the terrorist attacks in Paris, the UN climate negotiations set to take place there later in the month were an incredibly complicated topic. The UN climate process, after all, is not simple, and it is not without history. In the attack's wake, a number of mass mobilizations designed to pressure the negotiations have been cancelled in Paris, though actions like climate marches around the world are going on as planned, and are even expected to be bigger than anticipated. In Paris, the negotiations themselves will go on as planned. So the big question remains, what do we really need to know about COP21 in Paris? To answer that question, I got two people on the phone. My boss, Christian Torito, the communications director for the Global Call for Climate Action, and Kea Chatterjee, the executive director for the U.S. Climate Action Network. I started with Christian, who is on the line from Germany. Um, I think uh, where I would like to start is, is sort of the importance of international collaboration on issues like climate change that are international in nature, that are cross-border, that can't be solved in one country by one sector, by one government, or in one, uh, by one NGO or something like this. Um, and the UN is just the right forum for trying to work together across borders, across regions, across North and South, in order to find solutions to these global threats that face all of us and working together in collaboration and in solidarity to tackle them. Um, that's very hard to organize outside a space that is not the UN. That's why I think we need to appreciate the opportunities that a forum like the UN, like the UNFCC offers us. Um, I think that's where countries can come together and feel that they're actually taking action together rather than independently I think we have seen 10, 15, or 20 years of, um, of, of slow uh, progress on climate change because countries were never so sure if other countries would come along. Progress has been slow, but in recent years it's picked up. Since last year's Lima talks, countries began submitting their national plans for curbing emissions to the UN ahead of these Paris talks. We'll get to those contributions in a moment. But let's start with how the Paris talks became the de facto deadline to tally up all these contributions. And that goes back to a rather dramatic scene during the 2011 COP17 negotiations in Durban, South Africa. There was an incredible decision made that was very, very hard to make, uh, so hard to make that the, the talks actually went over time by multiple days and, uh, and, and the entire conference facility was being torn down because it needed to be used for something else. So they were, they were removing the folding chairs, they were taking away the walls, they were taking everything away, but because parties or the countries hadn't quite come to an agreement and they finally came to an agreement that they were going to move forward um, with, with an instrument instrument and setting, setting uh, a, a deadline of 2015. Uh, and, and that was a really important moment. And another really important moment was a year ago, and Andrew, you mentioned really quickly the Lima COP. Um, so that was the last conference of parties where there was a decision that countries would put forward these targets. And that was another moment that made it clear that this, this moment in 2015 in Paris was going to be a very important moment for change. And I think that when that decision was made, and they was, they're called um, INDCs in jargon, but they're essentially national commitments. I think there was this enormous hope that every country in the world would come forward with their commitments and it would be sufficient for us as a global community to be on track for meeting the globally agreed political goal of 
limiting warming below uh, two degrees Celsius or so, making sure that global average temperatures don't go more than above two degrees Celsius. Now we know that that is not, in fact, the case. We know that uh, when you add up all the targets that countries put together, that best case scenario, so assuming that, that those kinds of, of actions would continue even after 2025 or 2030, then we're on track for a 2.7 degree future. Nonetheless, this is the biggest set of commitments we've ever seen put forward by a group of countries, but it's not quite enough in terms of the targets of what we need. And that's where we are on the number side and why it's a really, really big deal on the number side, that it's, it's a huge number of proposals that have been put forward from the U.S., from China, and, and from most of the world, so from over 150 countries. The other side of the agreement is the actual text of the agreement, which becomes even more important in the light of those numbers not quite adding up. So what are the rules around those numbers? How often do we revisit them? What are the ways of us going beyond the commitments on the table so we can get on track for, for, the, for the two degree target that we've outlined? So meeting the two degree target will require commitments that won't likely be reached in Paris, even with all these contributions on the table. So much of the nitty gritty of the Paris negotiations is actually about what happens beyond Paris. Well, from the agreement itself, there, we need ways of making sure that we are keeping the opportunity open for us to do what we need to do to tackle climate change. There's a few elements I'll highlight. One is this idea of transparency. So that's, it's great that countries put forward their targets. How do we know they're, going, they're planning to do what, what they've put forward? And so there'll be a lot of discussion around that. There'll be a lot of discussion around um, what's called five-year uh, ratchet cycles. So how, how can we increase the ambition over time? We'll also see for the first time known in the talks as Workstream 2, which is the, the, the efforts put forward by the business community, by, by civil society, um, and, and, by, and by, by cities and states. So that's something to keep an eye on, and it is another way of, of increasing ambition. Um, and then another thing to keep an eye on is this discussion around uh, what's called a long-term goal. So what, what, is the, what is our ultimate goal? You know, in the community, we talk a lot about limiting global average ter surface temperatures from rising more than two degrees. That doesn't really translate to the public very well. Um, and so, so are we going to say something about the need to decarbonize um, and the time frame in which we want to do that? These are all questions that are up in the air. And while the stories of the actual negotiating text will be sorted in Paris, the broader stories will remain beyond it. Uh, I hope we can talk about the COP and its outcome politically, looking at the bigger picture and the real world and not get lost in the detail on what they agreed on paragraph 5 or paragraph 7. That's important, and I think there's an insider debate to be had where that needs to be discussed in detail. But I think for your aunts and my uncles, um, I think we need to tell them, ideally, if we can, if that is what happens, that Paris sent a signal where the world for once decided um, you know, in unity, that essentially we are ending this era of fossil fuels and that we are fully embracing this new dawn of renewable energy. I think we are at the brink of this anyway, we are on the road to that scenario anyway, the tipping point is either past or is near, and Paris can be a moment where the whole world understands that. Okay, so Paris is a big, beautiful, even enchanting roadside stop on a pretty long journey. Christian talks about this narrative a lot. It's the story of the ongoing transition. So the story of the ongoing transition is essentially 
the story of the transformation of our economies and societies away from dirty energy to clean and renewable energies uh, and everything that comes from that. Um, for now, it's mostly a story of a people-powered transition, um, a transition that's also driven by businesses which understand the benefits of action and see the writing on the wall, driven by investors who are already starting to pull their money out of dirty and put it into clean, um, driven by some governments, as Kaya said, especially at city and state level, but uh, also in a few countries at the federal level, um, driven by the scientists who explain the urgency, by the doctors who understand the co-benefits and the urgent need for action, the people of faith, you know, from the Pope to Muslim leaders, uh, who all explain that we need to act. So it's a people-powered transition, um, which um, is, on the one hand, a response um, to the bad things that we see in this world today uh, in terms of climate impacts, uh, injustices, and inequality, but it, that is also driven by the desire sort of, uh, of, of what we can get if we turn this around, the flip side of all the bad things, uh, the positive co-benefits, the visions for a better, safer, and more stable climate future where many benefit, where prosperity is actually possible, where those who have it today can maintain it, and where those who don't have it can get it. Um, that's sort of the story of the transition. Um, it's, it's a story of change where we are also dealing with uh, a villain. Um, the villain uh, is essentially uh, the one who wants to um, sort of slow down or stop this transition because of vested interests. Um, examples for this villain would be the fossil fuel industry or, um, or those um, who have other vested interests in, in uh, energy choices. Um, and governments play an interesting role in our narrative on the ongoing transition. Uh, they are currently not really driving and pushing it. Um, they are also not necessarily slowing it down proactively. Some obviously do, but not all. They are not necessarily the biggest villain. Essentially, those people who are pushing and driving this ongoing transition are calling on governments to come on board and uh, to help lead it to the scale and to the speed where this transition needs to be. Because it's undoubtedly here. You only need to look out there in the real world in terms of what's happen, happening in public opinion, in the economy, on markets, uh, in political negotiations, and you can see it's there, it's happening. But as Kaya pointed out earlier, it's not quite there yet, right? You need to still speed it up and scale it up so that it brings warming down to safer levels, uh, so that it is fairer and that it's, you know, we allow all communities everywhere to benefit from it and to participate in it, etc. That's where government governments come in, and that's where Paris is a moment on a longer journey. So this narrative is not a, a Paris narrative. It's not a narrative about Paris on its own. We don't want to look about, at Paris in a bubble. We want to tell a story that takes us to, through, and beyond Paris. This is the longer journey of the ongoing transition in which Paris uh, can give us a boost. Now, the reason Paris is still seen as a potential boost rather than a bust is because of actions from countries that have traditionally sent mixed signals to these meetings, like the U.S. and China. The U.S. heads into the Paris talks with the Clean Power Plan in its pocket as its de facto INDC. As for China, their enhanced leadership role is seen as a potential positive plot twist on this journey of the ongoing transition. A lot of bilateral agreements happening in the run-up to talks, that, that these Paris talks that give the talks momentum. So a hugely important set of those agreements were between the U.S. and China first, where both countries announced their their actual you know emissions targets, and then a more recent one 
where China actually put $3.1 billion of climate finance on the table and talked about, you know, the, the policies they were going to put in at a federal level. These are huge things that we did not have going into Copenhagen. And I think that we, we see now that, that the situation uh, in, in China is very, very different. You know, people there are really suffering from local impacts of pollution. Um, and as a result, the government is, is having to take action in order to protect their own citizens due to a demand from their own citizens. So, so we're seeing that, you know, the old talking points that used to be, exist about, um, you know, about China not wanting to play are just gone. You know, they were never fair talking points to begin with, and now they're not even factually correct points. So again, what we see right now are these two sets of things happening. One, pretty much all the countries of the world, um, you know, uh, over 150 countries coming forward with numbers that are the biggest ever, but not quite enough. And then all the countries coming forward with a real good faith effort to come up with the text of the agreement that would allow us to get to where we need to go. And personally, I can only imagine that, uh, you know, as shocking and horrific and awful as it is, that the attacks on Paris will only only make heads of state even doubly committed to, to being there themselves and showing solidarity and to putting their best foot forward to, to work with the French government to come up with the best agreement that we can. So that's what we're all working towards. We have our fingers crossed. We know it won't be enough and we've got a long, long ways to go. Uh, but but we're, we're working hard to make sure we, can ha- we have the best possible outcome on December 12th. And that is our tree podcast. Thanks to Christian Charita and Kaya Chatterjee, and thanks to the Stick Mob for letting us sample their tunes, this time appropriately entitled Ain't Looking Back. And please check out our COP21 messaging materials, our alerts, and our podcasts, and other fun stuff at treealerts.org.